Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary Thoughts series and was recorded on December 13, 2018 at the Centre d'études Maghrébines à Tunis, CEMAT. In this episode, Dr. Tavis Jules, Associate Professor of Cultural and Educational Policy at Loyola University Chicago, talks about his latest book entitled Educational Transitions in Post-Revolutionary Spaces, Islam, Security, and Social Movements in Tunisia. Thank you so much and thank you for coming and uh, thank you for having me. I'm going to spend hopefully no more than 10 minutes explaining a few things about the book. This book is a labor of love. It's a five-year ethnographic project that I started in Tunisia back in 2012. Briefly, over time and reshuffling and thinking of different ways, we concluded that there are eight chapters that we wanted to talk about across the book. In 2012, when I came to Tunisia, it was just after what the West was dubbing the Jasmine Revolution, a term I use in the book, but only once because Tunisians don't call it the Jasmine Revolution. They prefer to just refer to it as the uprising, Ottawa. So for me, I spent a significant amount of time trying to locate the role of education in the pre- and post-2011 period. One of the assumptions that I got coming from the West when I first came to Tunis was this idea that the uprising was leaderless and the idea that it was not only youths who had started it, but It seems as though everybody had spoken about the revolution in a way that didn't make sense to me. And by not making sense to me, I couldn't understand how overnight people had discovered social media, had gone to the streets, had started protesting, and then a regime fell. And in trying to make sense of that and being a comparativist and also working within comparative international education... I was trying to understand what role, if any, did education play? And what does that look like? And what initially started off as a book about the role of education pre and post the uprising ended up turning into a book that chronicled 3,000 years of educational development in Tunisia. And I'll explain why I had to go back for 3,000 years. It wasn't where I wanted to start. What we found, particularly me as, as I wrote several other chapters, I found myself telling a very competitive story, a very interesting narrative, a narrative that I'm going to share with you today. And it's a narrative that the more I think about it is the more that it's compelling. And so in the first chapter, I do talk about that narrative. And then I ended the book with this idea of how it is that we've gotten from a leaderless uprising to a moment of discontent in Tunisian history. 
One of the things in thinking about Tunisia and the so why question for me that was important is that when I got here and later on with my doctoral student, we were trying to understand how roles and modes of education have been actors of dissent in responding to various critics across various time periods. We looked at the social movement literature and we found that the social movement literature could not explain what we were seeing in Tunisia. Particularly, it couldn't explain the sense of disillusionment that youths had felt immediately after 2011. Because when you look at the social movement literature, it's all about, yes, we came, we conquered, we saw, and it's changed. And when we came, and even still now, youth are disillusioned, and we kept asking ourselves, why it is that they're not happy? If this is supposed to be a leaderless youth revolution where nobody's telling them what to do and how to do it, in this time of freeness, why are they so disillusioned? For us, it was paradox. We couldn't understand that. And one of the things that we ended up having to do is later on, we realized that in order to understand the present, we had to understand the past. And that past actually took us, believe it or not, to the pre-colonial and the colonial period. <laughs> and then we went through the authoritarian periods and then the post-period. And with that, in being able to talk about these three distinctive periods and having to cut a significant amount of things out, we realized that we can ultimately not only talk about the role of education that has played pre and post-2011, but we can clearly articulate an argument based um, coming from the political science literature, this idea of the dictator's dilemma. One of the core arguments of the dictator's dilemma is that over time... Citizens are willing to give up aspects of their freedom for what they see as economic benefits. We were then able to trace over time, particularly through archival data, other ethnographic work, interviews, observations, but significantly a discourse and analysis, we were then able to trace over time how it is that not only the dictator's dilemma occurred across the two dictators that we think about in the post-independence, Bagiba and Ben Ali, but we were also able to trace a continuous pattern in which for over the course of 3,000 years, and we can talk about this, whether you think of it as in the Berber civilization, the Phoenician civilization, the Romans, the, the Vandals, later any of the four Arabic civilizations that has seen the course of Tunisia, we were then able to trace how education has acted as a way to what we refer to as middle-classness and the way in which dictators, be it the dictator in the contemporary sense that we think of, what is Bourguiba or Ben Ali, dictator in the immediate pre-colonial period, the sense of the bay or the king, or even earlier forms of dictators, we were then able to trace how over time they were instrumental in using education as a weapon and as a tool. As a tool, it was used as a way to be able to give citizens access to the middle class. But in giving them access to the middle class, it was part and parcel of the way in which citizens would then give up aspects of their freedom. But in giving up aspects of their freedom for access to, them, to the middle class, what we also found is that over time, it was something that the same middle class citizens who had gotten access to that middle classness, it was often them who would rise up against the dictator and who would ultimately have to sanction any form 
of uprising. And so one of the things then that we were able to assess is like, did people say, so why was GAFSA not the defining moment? Or for example, if you, we all know that before Bozizi, there were lots of other self-emulations. What made his that pivotal point? And so one of the ways in terms of thinking about where did that pivotal point come from and why it started at the end of 2010 and not before then, is we were then able to see when and how the middle class, what we refer to as the coastal elites, the northern suburbs, Saxe, Monastir, Sous, etc. These are all the coastal elites. We were then able to see that it's only after, historically, across time, that once the coastal elites had actually sanctioned something, that that had happened. We know, for example, as people moved down the coast, monasteries, Swax, Hamamet, etc., we knew that they were, in essence, those protesters were allowed to pass and nobody stopped them. Historically, they would have been stopped. And one of the things we make the argument is the fact that they had not been stopped by the time they got to Tunis is because they not only did the coastal elite sanctioned it, but they were, the coastal elites actually blessed it. Because in the past, those who were stunned supporters of any of the regimes would have stopped them and be like, you're not getting to Tunis. And that's why one of the reasons we can argue that Gafsa was actually suppressed, because at that point in time, nothing was sanctioned by the coastal elites and they didn't necessarily feel the need to rise up. They did not, in 2008, we would argue, did not feel as though they wanted to give up their middle-classness. They weren't initially tired of what was going on. And so for them, in 2008, authoritarian bargaining was still alive and well. It was still the gift that was giving in 2008. So there was nothing to sanction in 2008. But by 2011, we knew that things had gotten worse. There had been a significant amount of excesses, etc. And by then, they were willing to give it up. And so that has been the general framing of how we've talked about the dictator's dilemma. And in talking about the dictator's dilemma, we frame it around three very distinctive narratives with regard to education. And so when asking, one, not only what was the pivotal moment that education was used, and we can actually point to a very pivotal moment that education was instrumental in not only starting and shaping the uprising. So we can point to a specific policy, both at primary, secondary level of education, as well as high, at the high level of education, that were implemented by uh, the Ben Ali regime, that they did not realize the consequences of that, that would ultimately have a trickle-up and little trickle-down effect. That would be the way in which education was meant to shape things. The first of those policies would have been Adaman, I call the Tunisia of Tomorrow policy. And the second of them would have been the creation in the 2008 of the movement towards the LMD system. Both of these policies at distinctive levels of the educational sector were used as we argue, as part of three distinctive narratives that not only we see now in Tunisia, but we've also seen over time that has shaped the way in which the dictator's dilemma occurs and has played out in Tunisia. The first is, we argue that skills shortage not only has existed and continued to exist in Tunisia with regards to education, in the sense that the way that students are trained are not for the needs of the labor market. There's a disconnect between the training and the types of studies that students undertake in the actual university settings and the type of skills that the labor market needs. 
So there's a huge disconnect. And so for over time, what ultimately has happened is that you found, particularly in here from 87 onward, what you found that that's the solution to skill shortage has been to build more universities. Hence, you had the expansion of, of universities between 2005 and, and 2008, particularly with the now 13 public universities, was to build more universities. And that didn't happen. And it was also a way in terms of how do we then try to fix issues with the baccalaureate which also didn't happen. The next is this idea of an open and free access to education. From the post-independence period to now, one of the things that we can see is that immediately after independence, Tunisia focused on access. It gave everybody access without really thinking of the consequences in the 60s and 70s of what that access would bring. By the 1980s up until 1984, when you had the bread riots, what access in essence had done with education, it had moved a group of people who did not have 20 years earlier not only access to the basic necessities because of the issues with coming into an immediate post-colonial period, but it had moved them towards the beginning of middle classness. And by that time, they themselves were starting to tell their kids that in order for you to be successful, you need to have an education. Because they came of age when an education, in essence, equaled middle classness. And middle classness with an education meant that you were working for the existing French bureaucratic structure, which not only did not change, but has not changed. So in essence, you had a regime educating you to work within a bureaucratic structure that wasn't an institutional structure, that wasn't Tunisian, but it was still French. And so that meant that many people had access to middle class by the mere fact that they had a job. And having a job then brought with you certain privileges. So for them, that same mentality by the 80s was passed on to their children. You go to school, you get a job, but in the bureaucratic system, you work and you have a husband, wife, kids, etc. And you've seen a success. The, the middle class dream continues. But by the 80s and 90s, when we moved away from access and then we started focusing on equity, particularly around issues with gender and later on the current period of quality, we also realized that the Tunisian post-independence dream of education, job, middle class, those almost guaranteed rights, we also see that they started falling away because it was no longer guaranteed. There weren't enough jobs within the bureaucratic system to be able to sustain the amount of people who were trying and who needed to have jobs within that system, and so it started falling away. The final thing, narrative we talked about, is this idea of Tunisian exceptionalism. One of the interesting things that we sought to understand here, and particularly more so why you talk about the leaderless revolution and what does that mean, is that I think to Tunisians, maybe it's simple in that sense. But to the rest of the world, particularly in the West, where we tend to lump all Arabs together, it's problematic. Because in lumping all Arabs together, one of the things we, we do forget is Tunisia's exceptionalism. It's exceptionalism in the fact that for the past 3,000 years, it's continued to be a homogeneous society, not one that is based on clan or tribalism, things that plague the rest of the Middle East, and therefore it makes it unique. The social fabric of those things are slowly coming apart, but in general it is. It's exceptional in the fact that it has been and continues to be one of the few countries in the world that actually has dictated its terms in terms of its educational policy to the World Bank and not vice versa. This was something that Bagiba was very strong on creating. 
It was the first country to get a loan from the World Bank, but it's also the only country in the world that actually said to the World Bank, these are the terms that we are going to take that loan and not vice versa. That's also one of the reasons that Tunisia does not have user fees at universities, where any other country where the World Bank has gone into their user fees. So there, And there's lots more within that exceptionalism. And so... As we talked about all these narratives across the book, and we look about all these different things in terms of the role that education played and has played, and we were able to pinpoint and say there was one crucial moment that ultimately can be responsible for the fact that you had the educated middle class people coming out on the street. That pivotal moment we point to is, as I talked about early, the policy that was started under the School of Tomorrow. Briefly, under the School of Tamar, the idea was is that at that point in time, Ben Ali was projecting to the world that as he was creating more democratic institutions, one of the things that Tunisia needed to do was to invest in ICT. So, over the course of time, Tunisia spent a significant amount of money investing in ICT. One of the big investments in ICT that were made was the program, those of you who are old enough remember, it was the One Computer Per Home program, where everybody was given a loan to buy a computer. Here, the question is not whether the computer worked or didn't work, or whether you bought it or not. It's more the idea that the way in which the regime shaped access to technology, primarily in the early part of the 2000s, it was done differently from its previous policy. In trying to tell the external world that we were proponents of technology, and then Tunisia held several ICT conferences, one after the other, and chaired the ICT committee globally, it was saying to the regime, look, we are doing these things by preparing our students with skills for the market. What they were not necessarily understanding is that they didn't understand what technology would be. So you had a generation that slowly came of age and you had a a whole, an older generation that also came of age knowing technology but not understanding it. And so we also know that the thread from knowing something to understanding something is very simple. And so what we were then able to see is that we can clearly state Had they not had this policy, we would not have a technologically elite and savvy youth that ultimately would have gone to the street. Said differently, the regime did not necessarily see the consequences of something that they actually thought was actually going to be good. So again, it's not about the fact that there were computers in school and they weren't working, or too many computers weren't bought, or many computers weren't bought, etc. It's the fact that you had an entire curriculum across a country that was geared towards teaching some form of technological literacy. You had mass campaign and mass mobilization. Those of you who were old enough to remember, remember the technology bus that would go from place to place. It sounded like an ice cream truck. It would drive through, particularly it went further into the south, it would drive through. It, it's the project started in Nebel and it finished in Nebel, but you oh, had yeah. the here, it, so it would drive through when it was the promotion of, of it. Again, we, we often forget that you, you had, there was an actual technology bus that went through because it was part and parcel. So how can you talk about moving an entire society forward to give them 21st century skills by saying we're focusing on technology without not recognizing the consequences of it. And so, in sum, that's how we talk about the role of education. But we also, in the concluding chapters, we end by talking about, yes, education, we can clearly state education got the youths onto the street. But what we can also say as well, too, this is an interesting paradox that we struggle with talking about. You talk to any Tunisian 
They will tell you about high unemployment. They will tell you about how bad the facilities are at university and how much they need to study and the lack of resources they have. And they'll give you a laundry list of complaints about the inadequacy of the Tunisian higher education structure. And they'll complain about the LMD reform. But oftentimes what they forget is that this system that is not fully funded, staffed, and under-resourced is one of the best in the world. And the type of education that it gives them because of their struggles allows them to have skills that, while are not necessarily geared towards the Tunisian market, are geared for external markets. And so in a short time, what we were able to see in the post-2011 period is that, like any company, if somebody recognizes skills, they're able to pull that and to take that. Thank you. Thank you very much again, Tavis, for this very insightful presentation. So your book title states different and independent elements of approaching the Tunisian transitional moments, be it pre or post-revolution. It talks about Islam, security, and social movements. How can you explain the role of education in linking these three vectors? In linking Islam, security, and social movements to education, one of the fundamental things in terms of conceptualizing this project over five years, first I had to step back and ask myself, did education play a role? And what role did it play? I had to convince myself that education played a role because all the interviews and everything that I had done with people, they said, no, 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 education was insignificant. It didn't play a role. Yet, one of the first financial bailouts or one of the first set of financial money that came to Tunisia was actually for education. It was the very first set of funds that were transferred over. And in terms of, you know, the post-reform, it was for education. One of the first sense of consultations that occurred was for education. And so we often don't think of the role of education, maybe because it's, it's so intrinsic. And so in thinking about Islam, social movements and security, I was trying to think about how do I incorporate into the title the voices of the youth who I hear who are completely and continuously disillusioned particularly those who are left, who had died, and those who are coming back and with the potential of becoming radicalized. And so for me, that's, that was the social movement aspect in terms of, you know, how do you capture a spirit that has been broken? And I feel that many young Tunisians feel as though they've been broken. And I got tired of hearing things as though we were better under Ben Ali than we were today. And so that's what the social movement is about. The Islam, I wanted to talk about, particularly in the third chapter, that yes, Tunisia is first and foremost Muslim. But oftentimes when Tunisians talk about themselves, the Islam isn't the one that comes up the first. They, they don't put the idea that I'm Muslim front and center. And so, in your book, you argue that modes of education could become actors of dissent, specifically through a conscientization process. How is that? Paulo Freire. One of the things he talks about is the sense of a political awakening. And ultimately, over time, we become awoken to not only the wrongs and the rights of society. In using Freire's work and juxtaposing it against what it is that I felt that youths were experiencing was my way of explaining this sense of awakening that youths had. Yes, I do think that the initial uprising, not revolution, I'm very careful here, I, I don't use revolution because it wasn't a revolution, it was an uprising. I do think that the initial uprising did start in 2008. Yes, Gafso was instrumental in shaping 2011, but it was only instrumental to the extent in which you had people who were able to take it forward. And people taking forward 2008 to 2011 was more about this idea of how 
not only they ultimately think about themselves, but it was more about their own sense of political awareness. And I would say it was a different political awareness that we would have had in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so for me, the fact that it was leaderless shouldn't necessarily be the most important. I think the most important thing should be that you actually had youths who were doing what it is that they were trained to do by an education system. Is when you disagree with something, you stand up in the best way you know how. That is by taking to the streets. And so this question is about the methodology. Your approach deconstructs different national education policies by analyzing the narrative and the discourses of official documents and policy documents. By doing so, you engage in what you called in your book a vertical study of Tunisian educational models. How could you explain the logic behind this methodology and the impact of this methodology on your research? So being trained as a comparativist and in my other research, it's also about looking at the impact of country A upon country B and vice versa. When coming to or work in Tunisia, I wanted to have a comparative element. The vertical case study is a new methodology that is developed in my field by um, Leslie Bartlett and Fran Vavres, two people who I also happen to were my mentors in grad school. And for a very long time, I doubted its validity. And the idea is, is that you study a place vertically. And, but in studying something vertically, I was like, as a comparativist, I'm like, why would I study something vertical rather than comparing it? And so for me, it was a way of doing two things. One was a way of testing theory. The first is that the transition literature in political science or in education we call it the transitology literature often talks about what happens in transitions. The established credentials is that after 10 years that a country needs 10 years to transition and after 10 years is when they would have transitioned and in that first 10 years education is often the first thing to be dealt. That's the established literature in my field. And I wanted to look and see if by using a case study if that held sway. As transitions occur, are there certain trajectories that they can follow? But I also realized in order for me to be able to do that, I had to study Tunisia vertically, and in studying it vertically, it allowed me to focus on the first, the what is referred to the, the vertical aspect in the sense of looking at the way in which different things influence each other, so, for example, the way on which gender influences education or equity can influence education, etc. The second is that it allowed me to look at the way in which international agreements, documents, discourse, policies, perceptions influence uh, Tunisia over time. So, ultimately, the changes that were being made at the national level, were these changes that were in the best interest of the nation or were they in the best interest of donor partners or the World Bank or the IMF, etc. And the third aspect, they were often referred to as the transversal aspect, allowed me to be able to, to look at change over time. And so for me, that was the most important part of studying Tunisia vertically. I needed to understand not only change over time, but the consequences of change over time. Because when studying policy, we often know that it takes a while before we can see the impact of something. And so for me to be able to make some of the assumptions or generalizations that I do, I needed to see what that change looks like over time. So in hindsight, I can talk about the school of tomorrow as a crucial watershed moment in terms of where we see the proliferation of ICT and how it's used. But for me to be able to see that, I then needed to also understand in not only did that policy created, you know, curriculum at the school level, but it was also part of the policy that ultimately created the 13th university, which we often forget, which is the VCT, 
the virtual university here. And we also know the VCT is responsible for that core curriculum, which means the online curriculum, which means that every Tunisian university student needs to take one of those online courses. Again, we're not questioning the quality of it. We're just questioning the mechanisms through which. And we also know that Tunisians, by their genuine nature, are inquisitive and they figure out ways to get around the system. But again, it's these institutional mechanisms and apparatus that I was able to see the way in which they operationalized that allowed me to see things vertically. And I would say the benefits have been tremendous that I have been able to see things as like, you know, the, the role of education or said differently. So Tunisia's national educational policies went through several reform processes before the revolution. How do you assess the role of Tunisia's external environment on these decisions? I would say it's different based on certain periods. So, like for example, in the 60s under Bagheba, he wasn't at all interested in the external environment and what they cared when he was enacting that the, the socialism, the period of socialism. He really didn't care. Whereas by the time you got to Ben Ali in the 80s, particularly in the early 90s when, when his first concrete reform was done, for him, the way in which the international perceived Tunisia was important. He linked education to himself around the man, the myth, and the legend. And so in linking education to him, it meant that he projected a perception outside that not only can Tunisia create or educate people for the Tunisian labor market, but because of its proximity to Europe, they can also educate for the French market. And so the perception in which he then sought to do that was different. That's also one of the reasons we go back and we say that the educations that Tunisians receive is not for the Tunisian labor market. It's for the external labor market. And one of the things that is often not spoken about is the amount of Tunisians who leave Tunisia and go abroad and study and don't come back. We make it seem as though, oh, it's, it's a natural thing, but it's not a natural thing. And we would argue that the system has intentionally been designed that way. That's also one of the reasons that you had the LMD system. It was intentionally designed to say, look, and it's fine. If you don't want us to send them, you can bring your call centers here because we train them how to work in a call center. You can bring this here. That's how the system has been designed. So, your book places education as a paramount condition to understanding both the Tunisian state's challenges and the social and political achievements. To this regard, how does this argument contribute to understanding the role of Tunisia's current educational model? The one thing that we saw over time is that regardless of whoever is in power, people just continue to do the exact same thing over and over. They just assume that the result is going to change. We now know that from 2011 to now, nothing in education has changed. But education became one of the first things to be blamed. I'm not sure those of you who remember the Ben Ali's last speech, and I have part of it in the book, a significant portion of the very last speech that he gave, a significant chunk of it is dedicated to education. If you ever get a chance to read it, it's all about the promises of what the Tunisian education system can give to you if you're willing to believe in it. And so, in essence, what has happened is that nothing has changed from 2011 to now. And that's because the system isn't really broken. It isn't functioning the way that people would like for it to do, but they also don't know how to do it. Tunisia continues to take part in Tim's and Pisa's tests, and it scores and ranks lower to the bottom. But compared to the other 150-plus countries that are not taking part in those international assessments, it still puts Tunisia ahead. Does that make sense? So there are problems with it, but there are also problems that are not being fixed. 
So then the question becomes, is often, so, so what can be done to fix the system? And does the system need fixing? That's a question I don't know the answer to, because I, I don't know what a good education system would look like. But I would also venture to say that, yes, there are lots of problems with the current system, but it's not bad. There are lots of things that can be changed within the current system, but it's also not bad. And I say that because you have to stack it up against, yes, you can go to a public university, you can get government subsidy, come out with no amount of debt, and be able to have a decent level of university skills to be able to find a job. Is that better than going to a private U.S. university coming out with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and still having to fight for the same job that I'm going to have with no debt? I don't know which is better. And for me, that's one of the challenges that I need to think about and turn to say, it's not that it's good or bad. It's just I feel as though the system needs to find its place within Tunisian society. And then I would make the assumption say that one of the challenges of Tunisian society is, again, we live in a culture where everybody wants to get rich quicker. And so therefore, we expect, like everything else, that if you get a good education, it gets you to middle class. But we also often forget that our parents didn't get to middle class overnight. Middle classness here is based on something that you work for over time. And yes, you get an education, you get the experience, and you go. So I would also say it's also not fair as well to put all the burden on the educational system. Thank you very much, Tavis, for this very beautiful conversation. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmaghrib.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.